Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Hi, welcome to the Provoke podcast. I'm Diana Marzalek with Provoke Media. Um, Our guest today is Paul Dyer. Paul is the CEO of Lippy Taylor Group, so I appreciate you joining us today, Paul. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's exciting, exciting to be speaking with you here today. You too. And um, on top of being a, a CEO of an agency, you wrote a book. Um, it's called Friction Fatigue. It's about advertising and uh, the marketing world. And my first question is how on earth you managed to uh, write a book when everybody else, I feel, I, I've just been trying to hold on during this whole sort of pandemic period of time. And, and here you're a CEO and you have young kids and you wrote a book. So um, congratulations on mm-hmm. that. You got to be very sensitive. Well, you know, you know, we were in lockdown when I did a lot of the writing, so I didn't have a lot of other things going on. Um, so, you know, that that probably helped um, in terms of obviously there's running the company, and as you mentioned, I have my young kids here with me, my daughters. But um, yeah, we were able to carve out time pretty much every day for a couple months there where I was um, able to write. Fabulous. So the book is called. Friction fatigue. Um, what is that term? What is friction fatigue? Just to get our conversation rolling. Um, the friction fatigue refers to um, the general sort of fatigue, um, tiredness that uh, consumers and society at large have with the intrusiveness and interruption of advertising, specifically in their lives, and it. it is built off of a concept that has been popularized first in e-commerce really by Amazon and then in mobile app development, in CRM, things like that. And a lot in e-commerce and online retail about the idea of of making the consumer's experience frictionless. And for anybody that's actually worked behind the scenes on things like user registration pages, you know, um, or shopping carts, you'll, they'll, they'll, tell you that there are key moments where they they lose people and they're always friction friction inducing moments meaning you're going through a registration uh, process for example and all of a sudden you have to switch from your keyboard to your mouse which is not a very big ask and yet that little bit of friction is enough for you to say forget it and you and you stop the registration process Um, amazon perfected this right this idea of frictionless with one-click purchasing and integrating throughout your whole um, online shopping experience. Um, but the idea being essentially that the more frictionless they can make the experience, the more transactions you'll engage in as a consumer. So take that as the thing that has defined our online experience for the last decade and compare it to advertising, where we celebrate disruption as if it's an achievement in and of itself. And where the actual purpose of the the discipline is literally to interrupt people who do not want to look at what you're showing them, and to interrupt them um, and try and and you know keep their attention. And when you've got a world where you know people consumers have gotten more and more and more choice, more and more and more control over their online experience, um, and yet. There's more and more brands every single day trying to reach them. 
the just over proliferation of advertising trying to create these little moments of friction in their lives just reached a boiling point and um so we went from you know what i would call advertising sort of uh you know annoyance to advertising avoidance with things like dvr um to ad blocking you know and you had consumers in like this tug of war with media outlets where you land on the website and it, it yells at you to turn your ad blocker off and, you know, um, to now just like outright indignation at advertising, trying to interrupt your online experience. And so that really, you know, that's the overall premise of the book is that now's the time we've been talking about sort of the, the death of advertising for a long time, but like, it really is here. People are done. You mentioned in the book, um, or you refer to advertising being broken, or um, I think you used the word failure at one point. Am I correct in that? Failure of advertising? Well, the, the subhead of the book is <laughs> okay. what the failure of advertising means for future-focused yeah, so, brands. You know? okay, I didn't I have, want to mince words, Diana. <laughs> okay, so my question, though, is, is this the failure of advertising, or has society, consumers change so much. I mean, people are so impatient now that they don't want to be disruptive. I mean, is this kind of the, the failure of advertising or is this advertising being on the brunt of larger cultural changes? I do think it is, it is a failure of what I refer to as the advertising industrial complex. The large sort of big advertising with a capital B and capital A where you have, um, you know, uh, these really giant companies doing massive advertising at such scale that, I mean, even when people from other countries come to the United States and they watch television, they're like, this is crazy. How do you guys put up with this? You know, and it's really because of the advertising industrial complex that that has reached that point. There's actually consumers of every age are okay with the initial social contract, which was that brands will provide brands or companies will provide free access to sports entertainment and news in exchange for you watching their commercial right that that initial social contract stood for decades and actually even if you survey people today many of them even in gen z will say i would accept that contract mm -hmm. the problem is we never defined the boundaries of exactly how much advertising we were willing to accept or how much we're allow, we were willing to allow those brands to intrude upon us, right? When it comes to privacy, personal data and things like that. And the big advertising industrial complex just basically ran ramshod um, over, the, over consumers over the last decade. Now, so, one of the- oh, I'm sorry, sorry, no, no, I'm sorry. I thought you were done. Um, the intrusion, I just wanted to note, the, the intrusion is not necessarily watching football and having the ad come on. It's, it's also the, like you said, the back end, the privacy and the tracking, yeah. the data information that, that crossed. Yeah. Out. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things I talk about in the book is there's basically two different ways that the advertising industry offers sort of this value proposition to brands. One is we can interrupt people. So we will seduce their attention with sports or news or entertainment, and then we'll interrupt them periodically and make them look at your commercial for toilet paper. Yep. Right? Um, the second is we will intrude upon them, which is we're not going to interrupt them. So if you look at Google and Facebook, for example, 
their ads, except for YouTube pre-rolls, don't interrupt people. You can just keep on scrolling, right? The, in Google, the ads are on the side. In Facebook, you just swipe on by and they just keep on going. They don't interrupt you. But instead, they, they intrude upon you. So they are tracking everything you're doing, at least until Tim Cook kind of drove a stake through it a couple of months ago. You know, they're tracking everything you're doing and then using that to try and serve you better ads. Um, and people, again, the, the boundaries around how much of that intrusion they were willing to accept were never clearly defined. And all we know is that everybody now sort of generally agrees it's too much. So it's too much. We're, we've got that down, right? It's too much. Where does that leave brands? Where does that leave marketers? I mean, <clears throat> honestly, I think we're going to come into now a golden era of creativity for marketing. Because first of all, you have to distinguish and separate advertising from marketing because they're not, they're not the same thing. And marketing, I think, has now an opportunity to think again about how do we reach people in a way that they actually want to be reached, right? What are the things that we can do that um, still sell products, still drive a brand proposition, et cetera, um, without um, ticking off all of our consumers? And I think that, that it's very much like I came into this industry through the, the social media door. And in the beginning, the early days of social media, the websites were not mature enough to actually have advertising platforms. So the only effective marketing had to be really creative because you were trying to come up with something that would be interesting enough that people would actually share it with their friends or post it on their wall or their feed. And that's a really high bar from a marketing perspective. But that's also where amazing work came out of, you know, because it was high creativity. Now you have a lot of automation, you know, an overemphasis on data at the expense of creativity, um, programmatic, where you've got a, a billion dollar ad tech industry that exists to try to sort of automate away um, all of the risk in marketing that maybe you would invest in a marketing program and it wouldn't work. Um, but I think that we're going to come back into now a golden era of creativity where you're going to have to be coming up with ideas that are interesting enough that people will actually engage with them because they have too many options now for blocking you out otherwise. So this could be a benefit for the PR industry, whether it's advertising talent coming to the PR industry or just a shift in the way people are reaching out to consumers. Well, certainly. And I think that there's, um, there's you know, the PR mindset and then there are PR companies, just like there's an advertising mindset in advertising companies. And I make a pretty um, a strongly worded case in the book that the advertising mindset and the advertising companies, first of all, had plenty of warning about this. It had plenty of opportunity to embrace a new way of marketing and have just simply refused to do so. And so it's at the point where you have to accept that the structures that are in place, the way those companies actually operate, meaning having you know, uh, really, really large teams with everybody in a very narrowly defined role and the person who does the research doesn't have the insight and the person who has the insight doesn't write the strategy and the person who writes the strategy doesn't have the idea. And the person who has the idea doesn't write the plan. And, it's too much, it's too many people, it's this big long supply chain, it's too cumbersome, it's too expensive. Um, and it also, you know, the only way that that makes sense 
to have that many people working on something is if you're spending gobs of money on giant programs, which is why you end up with a really bloated advertising industry. The PR model is much more nimble, much more scrappy, um, but oftentimes can also not meet the sort of standard of fidelity in production and you know, quality of campaigns that um, consumers are expecting when just their friends on Instagram are pretty darn good at content production. Um, and so it's something in the middle of the two, right? Where you have a PR mindset, meaning an idea that's inherently worth talking about, produced at a quality and a fidelity that is um, better than traditional PR firms, but less cumbersome than most traditional ad agencies. So there's still a role for those or a place rather for, I mean, we still, you know, people still talk about Super Bowl ads, right? I mean, there's still the memorable ads that we all see that that take note that are super creative, that are big. So, so but Diana, so what was, what was one of those examples from the 2021 Super Bowl? Don't ask me. <laughs> but it's okay. I can ask anybody across the advertising I can, industry, I can, even I though they still have fast. parties. They still have parties to watch the commercials and everything else. But yep. now at the end of July, you sit down and ask them, they don't remember either. Right. Those okay. days are gone. Right. <laughs> right. But where does like the Nike Colin Kaepernick, you know, ad come in? Or I guess that was two years ago now, but, or, um, yeah. you know. And it wasn't a Super Bowl. I mean, look, the, and I talk about the, the Colin Kaepernick example in the book, but the, the idea there is what makes that a good earned marketing concept Mm -hmm. um, which is what we talk about at Lippy Taylor, right? We are the first earned marketing AOR. There's lots of PR firms that are embracing earned creative, but they're either still a PR firm or they're trying to become an ad agency. Lippy Taylor is the first earned marketing AOR. And that Colin Kaepernick example is a wonderful example of an earned marketing program. The brand did something, it was worth talking about, it demonstrated purpose and values. And then of course they bought ads to amplify it. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because people are okay with those kinds of ads in their feeds. Um, but the idea itself was inherently an earned idea. Right. So um, Super Bowl ads, really the, the reason that things like that historically had always worked was because they create a sense of bigness for the brand. And it gives you a, a heuristic. There's actually research done on this, but it, it gives you essentially a shared heuristic that you know now that everybody else thinks the same thing about that brand that you do. So if you're, you know, Cadillac and you're trying to create this very sort of like cool, urban, edgy feel for the brand, and you run a commercial during the Super Bowl that conveys that feeling, then I see that and I know everybody else probably thinks that about Cadillac too, because I know everybody else saw that same commercial. Programmatic, which is what we see really dominating um, the advertising industry today, it's more than half of all ad dollars are programmatic today. Programmatic is the exact opposite, right? It says, hey, remember that sweater that you personally looked at last September on Nordstrom? Here it is on sale. There's zero heuristic. There's no reason to believe that anybody else thinks anything about that sweater. That's the, that's the downside of personalization. So I do think big cultural moments, big cultural events like the Super Bowl still have a huge role to play in marketing, probably bigger than ever. And in that way, it's fine if you're a brand that is trying to create that, that heuristic 
that you can you can run a commercial during the Super Bowl. But the idea behind it should be something that's first worth talking about. The brand should be doing something, not just saying a message. And then you can amplify it by buying a commercial. Um, I read with interest your analysis of, of the Michael Bloomberg campaign and that sort of epitomizing the failure of advertising, if I've got that correct, um, mm -hmm. that he spent the gazillion dollars and he was out in a few weeks. Is that though emblematic of the problem with advertising or sometimes like maybe he just wasn't the right guy for the time? Maybe, I mean, I'm, that's, I think that debate is one about whether or not he would have like, like did he have a chance at winning is a different debate than should he have at least been, you know, like in the consideration set. He was not a ridiculous candidate, right? There, was, there were lots of reasons to believe that he was a reasonable candidate. And so that, you know, that in and of itself, I'm not gonna argue about whether or not he like could have won or should have won or anything like that. What we're looking at here is instead he spent more money on advertising in a four month window than Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton spent combined on the entire election, primary and general, just three and a half years earlier. And in any other time in history, spending that amount of money on advertising would buy you success in politics. That's why, you know, the, the news reports about political campaigns focus so much on fundraising because there's a strong correlation between whoever spends the most is most likely to win. He blew the entire field out of the water in how much he spent. And he crashed out with just a paltry return on it. So the point is really just to say, no matter what you think about Michael Bloomberg, you have to admit the advertising did not pull the same weight it would have just three and a half years earlier. Right. So we've, we've talked about some of the problems here with advertising where, you know, so to, to flip the conversation, this could be a benefit for marketers. This could be a boost for the PR industry. Where do you go from here? I mean, what do you envision if, if we're at that crux, what's the answer or answers? So in the way the book is structured is we start by, you know, making this very strongly worded case <laughs> that, that <laughs> advertising, it's like, you really need to accept this idea that time I, has actually come, right? Okay, okay right. so then, then we move on to, well, if they don't want advertising, what kind of marketing do consumers want? And, and then it goes into, well, if it's that obvious, why aren't brand marketers giving them that right now? Mm -hmm. And then what's a new framework for how we do this? And so the kind of marketing consumers do want, I mean, first and foremost is they expect to be heard, right? They actually want you to listen to the things that matter to them. And not just in the sense of conducting market research once a year, but in the sense of an ongoing dialogue. And that's sort of, you know, a little bit trite and, and sort of, uh, you know, social listening a la 2010 to say that, but it's, it really is not something that most brands have internalized yet today, right? Where it's like, what did you learn from your consumers this week, right? Like, have you actually listened to anybody outside of your walls and your consultants this week and last week and the week before? And so when we get these calls at Lippy Taylor, you know, like it's some company executive and they're saying like, should we be weighing in on Black Lives Matter? Okay, there is a lot of different directions we can go with this. But first and foremost, have you listened? What did the people in your world have to say about this? How do they feel about it? 
you know? And so first and foremost is listening. The second then is just evidence and credentialing. There's too much, um, you know, in advertising, there's too many claims. Uh, you know, this is the latest, greatest, bestest, newest. And so people are just, they, they don't buy any of it anymore. So it has to be credentialed. And that is obviously the place of PR is credentialing with key opinion leaders, experts, um, as well as studies, research, um, as well as social proof, whether that's driving user reviews, influencers, you know, user-generated content, things like that. Um, so that's a big area for PR there is, is credentialing marketing claims. The, the next, the third piece of it is they expect brands to be culturally relevant. And this one's, I think, one of the most interesting because when you ask people in a survey, which we did for the book, you know, um, they will tell you unequivocally, they expect brands to be culturally relevant. If you then ask them what that means, nobody agrees. They all think it means completely different things. I was going to ask you because yeah. <laughs> you know, we use these terms, authenticity, culturally relevant, purpose, and it's like, okay, they all sound good, right? But what do they mean? And there's, and again, in the book, we talk about there's different ways that brands can be culturally relevant and use a bunch of different examples to bring it to life. But you know, for some people, this might mean just the brand is participating in the same thing I am at the same time I am, mm -hmm. right? So there's a, an event going on and I'm tuned into the event and the brand is part of it, you know, and that just makes it seem like they're relevant to the same things that, that I care about. Um, for others, you know, it might be more about principles and values. They're standing for something that I believe in also. Um, you know, for others, it might just be more a sense of nostalgia, you know, like there's something that I grew up with and the brand, you know, has this role to play in my life and they know what that role is. They're not trying to be something different to me. Um, but there's lots of different ways for brands to be culturally relevant. But I mean, one of the things, you know, I, I, I take a little bit of, uh, one of the stories that I use in the book is I, I call out the fact that on a, a Procter & Gamble earnings call, the CFO at Procter & Gamble actually said, uh, you know, we are now going to be investing in culture-defining commercials, okay. right? Like as if um, toilet paper should be defining our culture, you yeah. know, or shavers or like deodorant, you know, which is just... It's it, just it's, it's, it words. <laughs> well, it just also, it, it demonstrates how far the advertising industrial complex has taken this concept. Culture is not for advertisers, right? Culture is for society. It's for subcultures. It's for groups and people and communities. And brands should figure out where they fit in the culture that matters to them based on who their actual customers are, as opposed to saying our toilet foot paper brand Charmin is now going to define what culture means to you. It's, it's just a complete misunderstanding of the role for the brand to play. Right. Um, so uh, anyway, so, you know, beyond, um, you know, being culturally relevant, they expect people to be, they expect to be engaged personally, right? One-on-one -on -one attention um, from marketing. And then they expect brands to do more than just selling products. And that, that means providing experiences like the Taco Bell hotel, you know, or creating a lifestyle perception, like what Red Bull has done. Um, contributing to societal conversations, like you know, weighing in on um, voting laws, and then embracing a larger purposeful mission, like you know, Patagonia is one of the best examples of that. So the, this is like that's the, the the section on sort of what kind of marketing consumers want. 
But the truth is most big companies, most big, you know, large advertisers um, have a lot of things in the way that prevent them from doing that. And so then we kind of break all that down as well. Um, things in the way in terms of mindset or expectations or um, infrastructure, staff? I some mean things. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, some things are like the, the five dilemmas that I call them. One, the first is measurement and incentives. You know, mm -hmm. so what are they going to be measured on? And in most cases, you're talking about brand managers that are overseeing, let's say it's a billion dollar brand. And if they grow 5% this year, it's considered a success. And they know if they just put, you know, $30 million into TV ads, they'll probably grow 5%. So why do anything different? And yet year over year, right? It's a depreciating asset. The advertising is doing less and less and it's costing them more and more year over year. And so it's just this slow downward trend where there's no one person that ever has the incentive to upset the trend. And that relates to the next one, which is commitment and continuity, because changing the way you do your, your marketing requires somebody who's going to be in place for a couple of years and is going to be committed to the change. And instead, what it typically happens in large companies is people are deliberately rotated, right? So they'll move them from brand to brand. And there's lots of reasons they do that. One is so that they get the experience and, you know, you can sort of learn something on this brand and apply it to a different one. But it's also because that way, no one person ever has the ability to kind of screw things up too much. Um, so the, the whole system is just kind of designed to vacillate, right? Um, then you've got proximity and familiarity, which is, you know, the, oftentimes the people who are in charge of marketing don't have any proximity or familiarity with the audience that they're marketing to. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you end up with these ideas that seem like they make a ton of sense in a New York City boardroom. And then when you actually go out into, you know, I'm from Des Moines, Iowa, you go out into Des Moines, Iowa, which is representative of their actual consumer, it completely falls flat, right? Because they don't really have proximity and familiarity to the audience they're marketing to. Um, predictability and scalability is basically about um, the internal structures that go all the way up to the finance department, the CFO at the company says, you know, you need to be able to hit these metrics because these are our management metrics. And if you're trying something new, that doesn't necessarily deliver, let's say, GRPs, you know, and the finance team is based on GRPs, then it, it almost doesn't matter how successful what you did was because you haven't hit their metric. Um, and so they're looking for predictability and scalability, and they feel like they can get that from advertising, whereas you get some crazy brand manager proposing something that they're not sure what it's going to do, and they're like, oh, that's not very predictable or scalable. Um, and then the, the final one is just inertia and established beliefs. And, and that's more, I think what you're talking about when you asked is, you know, is it mindset, you know? And so I think there is certainly an, as, an aspect of, you know, just established beliefs of this is what works, you know, and inertia to prevent um, the company from changing too much. So um, the grand conclusion then, I mean, where does that leave the, the ideas moving forward, the premise moving forward, where does that leave the industry, you know, agencies working with clients? Um, you know, you, you've laid all this out, but if there are those sort of roadblocks, where do we go from so, there? Yeah, and there's, there's a, a final framework um, called LACES, which is listen, activate, don't advertise, collaborate as a strategy, 
engage your audiences, don't target them, and then scale your program as the last thing you do. Um, what it really means, I mean, that's sort of like if you were to do everything perfectly um, and very, I don't expect really any brand managers at major companies to, you know, just go wholeheartedly change the way they're doing things, you know, or wholesale change the way they're doing things. Um, but there are little incremental things that can be done. They'll have a big impact. Listening is certainly one of them. Con committing to listening as a strategic imperative, something that's owned within the brand team, not just at the agency level, because ultimately agencies are trying to sell ideas. And if you're the brand, you should be as close to your consumer and your customer as possible. And that means listening. And that's like a weekly endeavor, not something that happens once a quarter or once a year. Um, the second then, activate, don't advertise. Again, I see um, lots of examples of this. And actually many of the, the case studies in the book are indicative of this, which is if you think about, um, like, uh, well, yeah, I'll actually use one of these cases as an example. Dr. Pepper has run for years now um, a really, really well, highly regarded um, advertising campaign during college football season, the Fanville campaign. Uh, it's 10 episodes. It's shot like it's practically a mini te television series. It's got all kinds of um, celebrities in it, high production value. You know, they keep submitting it for can lions and things like that. And so it's, it's, a, it's a shining example of best in class work for advertising, right? Then they also have an activation. And the activation is that during halftime, they have kids, college kids who are not athletes, come out onto the field and try and throw footballs into a big can, you know, and whoever gets the most in wins a scholarship. And you see the reaction in the crowd and you see them hugging their parents, and they're crying and people are talking about it online. And like, so they have spent about, they've given away almost $10 million worth of scholarships um, in the last 10 years. Uh, and they spent well over $10 million a year per year on the advertising. And then we just go look at the last 12 months of online conversation you find dramatically more people talking about the halftime show than the Fansville campaign and with a dramatically higher sentiment and things like that. It's an activation. It's the brand doing something. Mm -hmm. And the advertisement isn't necessary, but if you wanted to then scale it, you would advertise about the activation. Instead of shooting this giant celebrity-laden Fansville campaign, you would advertise about the activation and you know what these kids are gonna do now that they've got these scholarships and all these kinds of things. Right. So second point is activate, don't advertise. Third is collaborate as a strategy. There's lots of examples now of brands that are seeking brand partnerships, partnering with media outlets in new ways. Um, because we didn't really talk about the media side of, you know, this, these trends, but you know, what's happening is the media outlets have also determined they can no longer rely on advertising as their primary source of revenue. Right. And if you listen to the earnings calls of all the big CEOs, the media conglomerates, it's a, it's a consistent theme that they have to get consumer derived revenue, which is not just subscriptions, but also, you know, merchandise and events and um, affiliate links and things like that. And so brands that actually collaborate with the media outlet and the creative teams at the media outlet to come up with activations that are gonna reach the audiences, the readers or viewers of that media outlet, rather than just buying ad space from them. So that's collaborate as a strategy. And then engage your audiences, don't target them. You know, this is where it comes into more of a social media mindset and using influencers and, you know, engaging content and things like that. And then finally, and this is honestly, if you're going to take away one thing 
okay. from the whole book. Ready for it. That would be, <laughs> that would be, you know, like how, you know, people could change things. It's to plan paid media last. Because what they do right now is they, pan, they plan paid media first because it's the biggest line item. And then they come in later and they're like, hey, PR, what would you do with this idea? Mm-hmm. If they instead come up with an idea that's an earned idea first, build a whole program around it, and then say, oh, look, here's $10 million we can use on paid media. You're going to end up with a concept that's actually worth talking about and a media plan that ensures it reaches a lot of people. Excellent. Okay, we're going to end on that note since that's sort of the culmination of <laughs> the discussion. And <laughs> I appreciate you sharing it with us. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. And um, for being with us. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Anna. Okay. You have been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.